Well, it has certainly been a minute since the last episode of the Sweaty Oracle Show was uploaded. I There's going to be a lost podcast, lost to everyone, because I deleted the master files. So the day of the Square One Twitter fiasco, let me set this up for you. My little sister, who I haven't seen for three years, is coming home from where she comes from where she goes to school. Haven't seen her since before the pandemic, the Christmas before the pandemic. Really excited about that. I wake up and I think, what, what time did they say they were announcing it? The fake Twitter, 10 a.m.? I, like at 10.01, I was getting in the shower. I'd just gotten done shaving my head and I checked Twitter and went, oh, look, we got, it's, yay. And took my shower, didn't look up anything else, came downstairs, uh, quickly banged out a video for <laughs> TikTok announcing that Square One had t uh, tweeted they were coming to Broadway. And then started to record a podcast, and it wasn't until like 45 minutes into the podcast that I looked at my phone and I was like, why do I have more notifications than I ever have? And I began to understand what was going on and the day evolved from there, a day of anxiety. And it was so stupid that a prank, like I wanna pretend like it didn't give me any anxiety uh, because I didn't pull this prank. I didn't have anything to do with it. And I still stand by with my entire reputation. I know some of you are like, you have no good reputation, but I stay, I, I've announced a lot of things early. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but like dozens and dozens of things I've been correct on. I got duped by a Twitter account, but I, I stake on my entire reputation that that Sondheim musical uh, is coming to Broadway and it's not named Square One, but blah, 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 blah. I'm done talking about that. Anyway, that those podcast files have been completely deleted. No one will ever hear them ever and we're and i just needed a little bit i wanted some time off i wanted to spend time with my family i got a new robe for christmas i wanted to spend time laying down in it <laughs> a week from today i am going to new york city for some business things and for some very important personal things and thanks to uh two friends and followers on tiktok i'm getting to see two shows i'm getting to see top dog underdog and i'm getting to see death of a salesman and i'm overjoyed about that i still have a spot for one more show and i'm just going to see what's cheapest that day because i would love to, it's either going to be strange loop or hades town so it's going to be it's going to be luck of the cheap draw let me take a sip of water but I'm extremely excited about this. I don't think you guys understand. I have not left a house in rural South Carolina in six months. No social interaction, no dates, no going out to do anything, nothing. I put myself in a timeout. I needed to mentally fix myself a little bit after the three hardest years of my life. Um, and I'm really excited to uh, venture back out into the big wide world and to go to New York City. It's also my birthday pretty soon. Uh, it's my birthday. Yay. I'm turning 32, which is older than most of you have a concept of. It is older than I have a concept of. 
Which uh, directly brings me into, right now my plan for my New York trip is to bring packets of oatmeal and live off protein oatmeal because I don't really have money to eat. So, if you would like to support the TikTok, the podcast, my birthday, anything like that, I have a Patreon in that Patreon, you will find over a thousand pieces of theater that are very, very, very hard to find other places, all categorized for your convenience. There's constantly new rare stuff being posted on the Patreon. There is a Discord, uh, all kind of fun stuff. It's $10 a month. You can find the link to my Patreon and my TikTok and my Instagram. It's in the bio of both of those things. Also, uh, if you ever just want to send a donation, which is greatly appreciated in this process of rebuilding my life and my process of being able to afford McDonald's in a week, my PayPal and Cash App are connected with the email. That is also the email you can use to send in anonymous Broadway tea and gossip. That email is juicytheatertea at gmail.com. Please remember that is theater with an R-E because we are classy folks. Also, I've launched the first piece of Sweaty Oracle merchandise, which I've posted videos of on my TikTok. It is a beautiful baby pink trucker hat with Elaine Stritch singing I'm Still Here in her red ladies outfit. Because I, I, that's my favorite live performance of all time, niche merch for niche people. Uh, if you want more information about that, check out the videos on my TikTok. They've only been made in a limited number, so if you would like one, I uh, truly suggest acting quickly because I can only print so much of these. Um, yeah, yeah. Besides that, how, how is everybody? Did everybody have a good Christmas? Did anybody else have to fight tears watching the Matilda movie with your family because she hasn't earned your vulnerability? <laughs> or was that just me? Am I the only, was that, is that just something I experienced on Christmas Day? I'd already seen the Matilda movie through other ways, or a little bit early, uh, and I cried when I watched it alone. When I grow up, it's just, I remember the first time I heard when I grew up, it was like the first time I moved out of the house, it was right before, the first time I moved out of the house for the first time to go work at Disney. Um, so this was like, I, I started working at Disney at the beginning of 2013. I think I became aware and obsessed with the Matilda cast recording in late 2012. I think those dates are right. And uh, When I Grow Up has always made me cry. I remember when I went and saw it on Broadway after the show, I saw a dad at intermission punch the bathroom, excuse me, not at intermission, at the end of the show, punch the bathroom wall crying because he couldn't deal with the emotions Matilda the Musical had caused him. And that's how I felt about Matilda the Musical for 10 years. Incredible emotions. <laughs> One time I uh, auditioned for, I think, the national tour for the trunch bowl. Uh, and I was like, y'all want a what? A back handspring? And I didn't even, <laughs> didn't even show up. Uh. <laughs> my, when my siblings, sorry for that little pause. I was drinking some water. When my siblings were here, we, uh, 
watched all these home movies, but we didn't watch my favorite home movie, which is I used to make my mom set up the camera and I would set up uh, this little tiny TV we had and plug the wires from the camera into it so I could have a live feed of what I was doing. And I would set up clothing racks and drape them in sheets. And I would be behind the clothing rack performing, like lip syncing the Muppet Show with puppets, right? And I would have a set list, this whole thing. I thought I was creating incredible fine art. I, I still think I was. And one of these performances on tape that we have, I enlisted my two younger brothers for the end of it. And the end of it was supposed to be like this Brechtian fourth wall moment where uh, they tore down the clothing racks and you saw the puppeteer and you, me and you saw the puppeteer watching a live feed of what was going on. I had this whole thing planned with them and they tore down the clothes racks early. They were early on their cue, like by at least 30 bars by my estimation. And I'm like 10, maybe younger, maybe like eight. And then the camera captures this like five minute long speech about artistic integrity and how I'm trying to do something that none of my family understands and everyone is out to sabotage the art I'm trying to make. So yes, in case you're wondering, I've always been this way. The, the devil has always been inside of me. I've always been seeking that experience which exercises him out. And that devil is what we all have in the theater community, a horrid need for attention. A horrid need for attention. It's just best that you look yourself in the mirror and realize this. Yes, you can be in it for the art too, but you can be in it for the art without being in it for the attention. Theater inevitably is attention, instant gratification. It's not even like, like if theater was a drug, it's not like weed, it's not, it, it's not like alcohol, it's like heroin. When you're performing theater, that attention you want goes straight into your veins instantly and you feel it and it's this euphoric feeling and you keep chasing that dragon and you keep chasing that high forever and it never ends and we're all doing that in the theater community in our own little ways except for people who do lighting and set designs and stage managers you you people are like the saints of the theater world you are the good ones you are the beautiful souls among us wretched devils attention sinking wretched devils <laughs> and like I acknowledged this to myself uh, years ago, and I don't know if the recognition of this makes it any better when I perform the act of attention-seeking through the theatrical arts. But I do feel that, you, that we have to admit this to yourself. If you haven't looked in the mirror at the beginning of the day and done your best uh, all that jazz, Bob Fosse, it's showtime, folks. You, you got, we got to stop lying to ourselves, okay? That's the first step of overcoming it. It's kind of like the first step of becoming a great actor is just aggressively playing yourself. That's what 
Broadway recasting nowadays. Oh, I found a new rant. That's what Broadway recasting these days does not understand. Not even in the slightest does Broadway casting nowadays understand this. You cast the actor. You cast the actor to play themselves, and that is always where the greatest performance come from because the greatest performances come from intense truth, and the only real intense truth a person can inhabit is personal truth. Okay? Gotcha? Gotcha. That's why, oh, I'm rolling up the sleeves of my Tony Soprano-like robe. I'm going. That's why Andre de Shields and Amber Gray were such theater magic in Town because Amber was playing an expression of herself. Hermes was an expression of Andre de Shields. Those things were, were mutually exclusive of each other. They were their characters in a sense, and that's what made those performances visceral. It made you feel like you were on a mother fucking giga coaster you're at cedar point motherfucker and they forgot to put your harness on hold on tight who knows where the fuck you're going maybe you're getting back to the station maybe you're getting slung into the lake maybe maybe straight to the lake with you that is the thrill of performances like that Broadway recasting does not quite understand that yet. Broadway recasting tries to find people to carbon copy those people's originality. I remember seeing Hamilton with the original cast. I won the lottery. I don't have any money. I won the lottery in uh, December of 2015. Wow, that's almost 10 years ago. Anyway, I, I of course I was completely there was no way to see that original cast live during the fervor of the moment of the Hamilton moment and not have been completely taken away with it because it was it was you really felt like you were at an event of a lifetime and in a way I guess you were because I think that was the end of an old era of that era of theater we just didn't realize it. Anyway, anyway, anyway. I remember Turning to my friend, who was a casting agent at the time, after the show, and we were discussing this, um, and I told her, what's going to be sad is when they start recasting and it becomes impersonations of David Diggs. <laughs> and I don't want to poo on the actors in the role because it's 100% not their fault, like 0% their fault. They, they are there for a job, and they have to do what their job tells them to, and what their job tells them to generally is copy the original performer. So, again, to no fault of the performer, in my opinion, it starts developing this thing where it becomes a photocopy of 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 a photocopy, and the longer the show runs, the less resolution the photocopy has when they scan it again because – the motivation is lost. It's become stomp your foot here, but the motivation as to why the original performer stomped their foot in that moment and made that moment exciting with a foot stomp is missing, and the whole thing relies on motivation. You dig me?
that's and and that is not again. I've seen wonderful replacements in shows, absolutely incredible performances. I'm obviously generalizing. I'm obviously generalizing how these more long-running shows cast, right? And how they seem to rehearse and what seems to happen through the process of the show continuing to run. Actually, the Phantom of the Opera was always so polished and, and always played so well because how Prince did not forget the production. He routinely went back in, tightened things up, gave crazy notes, and made sure the show was still motivated. Motivated. That's One time somebody asked me, and I was like taken aback they asked me this because I don't know why the fuck you trust me on this how to tell a good piece of theater from a bad piece of theater and I told them extreme motivation when the number of buttons on the costume has a purpose the show's gonna be good when the actors every single eyebrow movement is done for an effect that that actor is ready to lay on the audience the show is going to be good when every line means something with no filler, it's going to be good. When the color of every single lighting change perfectly matches the mood, it is going to be good. Motivation, motivation, motivation. The only thing that makes something a worthwhile work of art. Notice I didn't say good. I said a worthwhile work of art is motivation. Because I've seen enthralling theater that wasn't good. And I have loved those memories. Spider-Man 1.0, anyone? Anyone who saw Julie Taymor's original vision of Spider-Man and then saw the 2.0 version instantly saw why Julie Taymor was the production. Julie Taymor was not the problem with the production. Julie Taymor's motivated ass was the production. And when you took the motivation of Julie Taymor out of it, the show became Six Flags. Horrible. And as a foot fetishist, they cut the shoe song fuck are you thinking I honestly think even after reading Song of Spider-Man that the, that the producers went out of their way to make Julie Taymor a, a, a witch in this when the obviously witches were Bono and the Edge you cannot have a good musical with bad music and God, that music was bad. Think of if somebody like uh, Radiohead, like if Tom York from Radiohead had written a Spider-Man musical. Think about if Tim Minchin had written a kind of, a kind of cheeky, I'm a kind of cheeky guy, I'm a kind of cheeky Australian man writing musicals. Imagine if he wrote a Spider-Man. There, there was a good idea in there that was instantly... Shot in the heart by Bono and the Edge's score. Excuse me one moment. I have a personal heater on in my room, and I'm spitzing over here. It's got to be turned off. Mm. 
One of the shows I'm seeing due to the incredible generosity of my followers is Death of a Salesman, and I'm so excited to see Death of a Salesman. I'm going to get personal for a minute. I read Death of a Salesman for the first time very, very, very late in life. I'm taking a drink of water. I read it in 2018 when my life was in a weird place. I got it at a secondhand bookstore in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, at the time, I was living with my family, and they were living by a river. Uh, and I could walk down this path and be completely isolated and sit on a rock in the middle of the river and read. And I would spend hours every day uh, doing that. I was working at Whole Foods at the time. But when I was not working at Whole Foods, I was sitting on a rock reading cheap used plays. I had always been meaning to read but hadn't. And I uh, read Death of a Salesman probably in like March or April of 2018 and was just I, – I didn't know what to do with how much it moved me on the page. It usually takes a performance or a director to help me be moved to that, to that degree, but this moved me instantly from the page. It just took over my mind in a way – plays on the page rarely do. The only other play I can think of that totally took over my mind the first time I read it straight from the page was Angels in America. I know that may be a controversial uh, opinion. So I read Death of a Salesman sitting on a rock in one session, and uh, I've been estranged from my biological father for a very, very, very long time really since like early high school but it started before that and uh there was no like we lived close to each other he had ways to communicate with me and throughout the years i would reach out to him either writing him letters or i'd call him and try to plan things with him and he would always cancel at the last second or he wouldn't even you know respond and uh Eventually, he just deleted me on Facebook randomly one day, so he cut off all communication, and I tried to reach out a few times, but after I read Death of a Salesman, I sent him a message that was like, look, I've got to get on with my life, and i got to get on with this, with us. This is the last time I'm reaching out. You have – this is the last time. I'm trying this. You can try this in the future if you want to, but I'm not doing it anymore. And I sent it, and I saw that he saw it, because you can see that on Facebook, you know what I mean? And, uh, and uh, he, he never responded anyway. I was not getting emotional. I thought, I thought the cat was trying to get into my room. <laughs> I was not getting emotional. And uh, he died a few months after that. Uh, he was violently addicted to drugs which is the reason I don't drink, really, or participate in anything that can cause addiction. I'll smoke a little weed every once in a while. I love Delta 8. I love Kratom, but, like, nothing that's going to kill me. I stay away from it on purpose, even in small qualities, because I know where I come from. No Lewis man has, like, lived that far past 60, because they're all kind of stupid. <laughs> that's mean. I mean, I, it's mean. Uh, but Death of a Salesman, it got me through that weird time period of what does the death of this man who very much disappointed me 
means, and I've never seen it live, I still haven't seen it live, which makes it all the more exciting uh, to go see it on Broadway. I am just, I, I cannot tell you how excited I am for it. I'm, I'm gonna lose my mind in like a, not in a way where I stand up and go to the lip of the stage and yell at, yell at uh, Willie Loman. <laughs> In case you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a freak out at Death of a Salesman recently where a person who was obviously having a mental health crisis, and I've seen people say that she was uh, maybe on, maybe she smoked something, maybe she had too much to drink. You can still be having a mental crisis just because you're high or drunk, you know what I mean? Mental crisis and sobriety are not mutually exclusive I don't I don't know if I said that right but you know what I mean you know what I mean those th just because you're drunk does not mean it's not a bit of a crisis and this person was having a crisis um and you know like number one would I be frustrated if I was an odd so I, I have this kind of hypocritical thing on this right would I be frustrated if I was an audience member? Yes, because it takes for it takes a lot for my autistic ass to tune everything else out around me. And it takes a lot for me to even tune down like the thoughts in my head and like my feelings from the day to completely release myself over to a production. So when a production like I really think I'm gonna find this production that totally grabs you and immerses you in a new world. If that illusion was suddenly broken, so like not violently physically, I don't want to use the word violently because there was no violence committed, but abruptly is the word I'm looking for, right? I would be a little bit m miffed. I'm the pr I, there is this yuppie white woman sitting in front of me, my very first Broadway show I ever saw. It was the original cast of Billy Elliot on Broadway. It was in January of 2000. And nine, it was my first time in New York City. It was my first time uh, in a Broadway theater. It was my first, it was my 18th birthday. I almost said it was my first time being 18, which I guess is true. Um, so I was just, you know, ready for this, what I thought was going to be like a looking at God experience. In a way, it was. And uh, the woman in front of me kept texting on her Blackberry. Remember, this is 2009, but I distinctly, I can still see the Blackberry because it pissed me off so much. So the woman behind, in front of me keeps texting and the usher luckily walks by and tells her to put it up and she like nods the usher off and then uh, continues to text. So I tap her on the shoulder and let her know exactly what I think about her and the phone uh the phone was not seen again because I did not want my illusion ruined. I refused to have the illusion ruined. This is obviously what happened at Death of a Salesman is obviously much different than some yuppie woman thinking uh, the rules don't apply to her. But where this gets hypocritical is I kind of love that a production of theater is so powerful it causes such intense audience reactions because I've been reading audience reports from this show where people are like gasping and audibly sobbing and sometimes yelling and some stuffy theater members are kind of turned off by that. But I am just enthralled going in 
that there is a production of a play on Broadway, not a musical, a play that is causing audience members to have visceral reactions. Is, is that not – I know that theater etiquette has changed many times throughout the years. I know it changes from like country to country and culture to culture. And I know that a lot of people have different preferences. And I know that I'm being hypocritical. But it's, it's kind of beautiful to me when people engage with the art they're looking at and don't just sit and hmm, hmm, and maybe have some silent tears. I think that is a testament to the power of what we can do with the theater. Why is my mouth so dry? I just want to talk about a debate. I feel like I'm not smart enough or educated enough to um, talk about. I just don't want people to think that I'm ignoring this debate, right? So from this is this was not a blind item. This is from somebody who I cannot out the source because they are very close to the situation. I verified that they're close to the situation. I this is a verifiable account, okay? And the account that they gave me recently and told me I could report on was that Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the Broadway production – I almost said Broadway revival. The Broadway production almost came back to Broadway for a very short period of time before the pandemic happened and ruined everything. And it was going to star the two original stars, Neil Patrick Harris and Lena Hull. And it was coming back in a big theater for a limited run, a theater like the St. James. And it was really coming back so HBO could film it for HBO Max and HBO HBO. And then the pandemic happened, and now that's back on the table. Um, I do I, – I, I see the comments and I see the debate of should wh – what – should a cis person be playing Hedwig? And I consider myself not like he, them, non-binary. I've played Hedwig. I've, I ask myself that question a lot through the process. I still don't know what the answer is. Even as a non-binary person, I don't know if I should have played the role. Uh, textually, I don't know if the character of Hedwig considers themselves a, a trans woman. I, the creators would say Hedwig doesn't. I, I would say the text suggests Hedwig doesn't. But at the same time, that does not take away the social, uh, the social and, uh, and problem. It does not take away the, the perception problem of, of having a cis person in a dress playing a trans woman, air quotes. I hope I said all that eloquently. I I don't know what the answer is to that. And for people, because people, for, I am honored that people like genuinely email me and ask me to share my opinions on things. I'm honored that my opinion matters to you guys. But uh, I I would say go go ask. A, a, a trans actor how they feel about that. Go ask a trans playwright how they feel about that. 
That's what that's what I would suggest. Don't ask my uninformed non-binary ass. And I know non-binary is in the trans uh, bubble. But you guys know what I mean. You, you know the people you should be asking. Because that's the opinion on this that matters. Not, not anybody else's. Ask them and let's listen to them when they speak. Okay? Okay. Broadway has a hard time with that because broad, you know, I, when... Uh, when when black performers on Broadway over the pandemic begged Broadway to change and Broadway promised they would, it was just empty promises to get them off their back. You know what I mean? Like it was it was bullshit promises. Broadway will make a promise to change, but really all they've done is is make a press release so that they look good on social media. They don't have they don't have any plans in place. They don't have any way they don't have any thought as to how to actually implement what they are speaking of implementing, nor do they want to because they don't really want to do anything that doesn't suit their financial bottom line, which is something that's kind of killing feeder. This idea that it has to suit a financial bottom line. Yes, everybody wants their shows to be profitable, right? But there was a culture shift when Disney started being successful on Broadway and other corporations realized they could do this too. So we started to get this bottom line theater. We started to get bottom line adaptation of, of, of famous Warner Brother movies and famous 20th Century Fox movies because everybody wanted a piece of that sweet, sweet Lion King pie. Have you found it yet? Have you found it? You haven't. Because it's artistically bankrupt. It's corporate theater. It's corporate theater. <laughs> How on earth did I start this rant? Wow, I don't even remember. And it was like 30 seconds ago. I guess it wasn't important. Something about something about lowest common denominator theater, corporate theater. Who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? Swear to God, if I don't live long enough to see the Muppets come to Broadway, I don't want to have lived at all. I know the last rant was about the corporatization of the theater. I know the Muppets are owned by Disney. I know if the Muppets came to Broadway, it would be a Disney production. Please know that I'm a huge, giant, motherfucking hypocrite. And, and, and after that, directly after the unfinished rant about the corporatization of theater, I want their corporate asses to give me the Muppets on Broadway immediately because I don't want to have lived at all if at the end of my life the Muppets never came to Broadway. Because within the end of my life, I will see the fall of America if I live to be like 80. I will see this become Mad Max. We're like five years away from it, really. So if Disney could make great haste, I don't care if it's the Muppet Christmas Carol. I don't care if it's the Muppet Show. I don't care if it's Kermit the Frog getting on stage and singing Rainbow Connection over and over again for two hours. Because somehow all Disney knows what to do with them. <laughs> Let's start over. Because somehow the only thing Disney knows how to do with those characters 
is put stock images on Jeep things and have Kermit pop up and seeing Rainbow Connection. That's all the characters are now. They are vehicles for Rainbow Connection. And sometimes Legos, because I'm looking at all the Legos right in my eyesight right now. That was nice, Disney. I'll give you that one. I know if the Muppets come to Broadway, it won't be top tier because Disney is something. Oh, I'm here now. Because Disney is, 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 they are only concerned with the bottom line when they produce anything. They're only concerned with the bottom line, which is why Disney's art is bad and which is why all these corporate, is, corporate Broadway shows are bad. Oh, God, this rant. Because you cannot make great artistic decisions when the only goal is the bottom line. You just can't because then it is an exercise in greed and not an exercise in artistic expression. And yes, creatives need to be reined in sometimes. If you don't know the story, let me tell you the original story that Julie Taymor pitched for Act 2 of The Lion King when Disney's Thomas Schumacher asked her to bake a presentation for the Disney board. You're going to think I'm doing an Andy Kaufman bullshit lie? Look it up. I'm telling 100% of the truth. In case you don't know it, let's talk about the legend of Papa Croc. So Julie Taymor pitched Lion King until the death of Mufasa. Spoilers. Until the death of Mufasa, it playing like the movie. You know what I mean? Like it's basically recapping the events of the movie in her Julie Taymor way. After that, Simba still goes and finds uh, Timon and Pumbaa. But then Timon and Pumbaa and Simba, at the beginning of Act 2, stumble across a Las Vegas-style city in the middle of the desert. And they get to this city, and it's populated by human-animal hybrids and run by Papa Croc. <laughs> Papa Croc is a crocodile human hybrid as you, you may have as you may have ascertained from the name Papa Croc. So Papa Croc is like like a mobster and he woos Simba and he makes Simba his prize fighter in this like boxing arena he has in one of his hotels in this Las Vegas furry hell we've descended to. And Simba's like, ooh, I'm a star. And he's boxing people. And he's not, he's boxing other animals. He's knocking them out. And Simba's like, I'm the best. I'm the best boy. I'm a movie star or whatever. And then he finds out his next opponents that Papa Croc are making him, is making him fight. He finds out the next opponents in the ring are going to be Simone, Timon and Pumbaa for Papa Croc's orders. And then he finds out that the way this city operates is they have cut off all the water to Pride Rock to divert it to Papa Croc's furry Zootopia shithole. Hell. So, uh, so, uh, Simba has had enough of that and fights Papa Croc instead and destroys the dam that's holding all this water back from the Pride Lands Thus, I'm sure, eventually killing all these human-animal hybrids who had enough sentient to, sentience 
to know what a brutal death dehydration will be. And Simba returns back to the Pride Land and fights Scar. Scar might have had it in with Papa Croc, too. I forget. And everybody happily happy, except for the furries in Zootopia land. Can, and the reason I laugh every time I talk about this is can you imagine Michael Eisner's coked up ass? Allegedly, I have no idea if Michael Eisner did coke, but it was the 90s. It was the 90s. Can you imagine Michael Eisner's face? During this presentation, can you imagine Thomas Schumacher turning white <laughs> as Julie Taymor passionately pitches the tale of Papa Croc? So definitely creatives need to be reined in sometime. <laughs> Though I can't lie, I would drop a little acid and go see the Papa Croc cut. I'd take a little mushroom chocolate and, and, and let J Julie Taymor take me to a Zootopia Las Vegas hell. Why not? Fuck it. Fuck it, man. Fuck it. Who cares, man? Who cares? Fuck it, man. It doesn't matter anyway, man. Oh, man. Fuck it. Oh, everybody keeps, not everybody, like one or two people have asked me who I think or if I've heard who is replacing Lena Hall as Audrey in Little Shop of Horrors. I'll tell you who it should be if there was a god. It should be Ellen Green if they want to get their ticket sales up. But let me, let me forewarn you, there is no god, so that won't be happening. But can you imagine the furry, the furries, I'm still on, I'm still on Papa Crack. Can you imagine the fervor of ticket sales that 40-year-old uh, to 50-year-old gays who bought apartments in the East Village when they were still $20,000 and now don't understand why the youth can't find housing in New York City because it was so easy for them and they were a full-time artist. And by artists, they were like doing Jackson Pollock's ripoffs and writing poetry for no one. And they went and saw Little Shavahars over and over and over and over again when it was off-Broadway and Ellen Green was their queen and no one's played it like the queen Ellen Green since then. And and now they post on Broadway World and they're bitter, they're bitter, 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 Sutton Ross, Jordan, you... After eight, and they only live for moments when they can relive their 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 youth moments when Ellen Green does Little Shop of Horrors at City Center and it sells out in thirty minutes. You know that crowd; they will at least propel your show for six more months if you get Ellen Green in there. If you lowered the keys for Tammy, you can lower the keys for where Green is now. Okay. Make your money, make the smart move, monetize gay men who live in the East Village over 40. That's my advice to the producers if they are listening. That's your audience. That's the ones with the money. Monetize them if you don't want to close. Or close it and put the spring away, the uh, London Spring Awakening revival in there. I think that'd be fucking thrilling if they put that revival in a small little off-Broadway house. I don't think they will. 
I have a weird feeling the ship sailed on that revival. I heard from multiple good sources that they had their money lined up. They just weren't sure of a house. This was like six months ago. I, I guess it's not happening. I think the ship has sailed. And honestly, uh, there's never going to be a better Spring Awakening revival. In my, there's never going to be a better Spring Awakening production than the Death West production that played Broadway. That is as good as the material is ever going to get. Michael Arden and that cast and creative team worked wonders on that script they did for that show what bob fossey did to pippin they took a mid at best musical and they elevated it to heights no one ever thought it could reach that's just my opinion we're not getting anything better than that and even that production could not find financial success so much so that ken davenport had to fundraise to go on the Tony Awards. I'll talk about that in a minute. If if that production less than 10 years ago couldn't fly and the original production less than 10 years before that couldn't really fly, Spring Awakening is just too big for Broadway. And that's okay. It's not saying it's it, it can't be a good night at the theater. You know what I mean? But you know what Little Shop of Horrors found out when they came to Broadway in like 2003, 2004? Little Shop of Horrors is not a Broadway show. It really is not a Broadway show. If you add horns to it and you put more than like 500 people in the audience, the magic is gone. I think the same might be true for Spring Awakening. Reopen it off Broadway. Let me back up to Ken Davenport, in my opinion, uh, taking money from teenagers so that production of Spring Awakening uh, closed, I think, in January 2016, if I'm remembering correctly. It closed in the middle of that horrible blizzard. And uh, it should have been filmed. It's a crime against God, that particular production that existed so perfectly in a visual medium wasn't filmed. But uh, it wasn't. So Ken Davenport... This is all allegedly it's all allegedly, but go go on the go look it up yourself. Ken Davenport, months after the show closes, uh, makes a Kickstarter or GoFundMe, I forget which, that he needs like a quarter of a million dollars if fans want to see Spring Awakening perform on the Tony Awards. Huh? And it was it was phrased as if uh, you were giving money for the exposure of death artists, which you were, and it was framed that, like, if they didn't get the money by the cutoff for the Tony Award broadcast, they wouldn't get to go on. When in reality, it was really, it seemed allegedly, a fundraiser to pay back Ken Davenport because you can't rush in with a big bag of money two hours before the Tony broadcast going, please, sir, we raised it. Let, let him perform, sir. <laughs> That's not how it works. He, he was kind of, in my opinion, being very manipulative to uh, get money from people under the guise that he needed that money for Spring Awakening to ever be seen on the Tony Awards, but in reality, those people were paying back Ken Davenport. And I just thought, allegedly, 
that puts such a stain on that perfect revival, which is sad. Isn't it sad when, like, perfect theatrical productions get this weird stain that they don't kind of deserve because of a scandal? Like, great comment. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, that was not me gagging. I great comment. That's literally my voice given out because I'm screaming into this microphone for an hour. It's like the great comet oak thing, which I don't know what the hell to think about that. Uh, I I don't know what the hell to think about that. It's like, but it's like that. It's so sad when uh, a perfect production gets marred by a scandal that could have been avoided, or a scandal that was like people being shady. And Great Comet had a lot of those. The producing team of Great Comet allegedly refused to honor their contract, which put the name of the off-Broadway company that originally produced Great Comet very prominently on all the marketing. Great uh, Dave Malloy had to sue them because they withheld royalties from overseas productions. It's just so sad when a perfect production gets this tacked to it, especially post-mortem. And that's what I felt like with Spring Awakening. And obviously what I felt like about Great Comet. My voice is given out. I, uh, I've i missed doing the podcast. When I uh, got ready to do this today, I kept going, oh, why don't I want to do this? Why don't I want to do a podcast? I don't have anything to talk about. Why would anybody listen to me? <laughs> Speaking of, <laughs> you know what I noticed about uh, Matilda watching the movie? If you haven't have if you don't have the subtitles on or you don't know Tim Minchin's lyrics, sometimes it sounds like Donnie from the Wild Thornberries, especially revolting children. We get a feeling naughty. It's just a little bit Donnie-ish for those who are not as versed in the Tim Minchin lyrics. And we love it. On that note, thus ends another episode of the Sweaty Oracle Show. I hope it was somewhat worth the wait. I had a good time recording it. I'm uh, Again, if you ever want to send in tea or gossip, it will remain anonymous at all times. You can send that in to juicytheatertea at gmail.com. That's theater with an R-E. That email is also linked to a cash app and a PayPal if you want to support the show financially uh, would be overjoyed. It also means I get to eat real food in New York City next week for my little birthday trip. That'd be amazing. Also, there is uh, merchandise available. Again, head over to my TikTok, at Sweaty Oracle. I assume you all know how to get to my TikTok if you've made it into my podcast to see pictures and video of that and learn how to purchase if you are interested. I would do it quickly because I am going to run out of the first printing, I think, within this week. I love you guys and girls and they-thems and non-binaries and everybody else in between. Animal kin, I'm, eh. the rest of you, I love you. I love the animal kin. I just don't want them in the house. Bye. <laughs>